Support for IPR comes from Corridor Vein Center and Corridor Aesthetics, treatment for varicose veins and spider veins, also providing facial rejuvenation services and treatment for moderate to severe acne. More at Corridor Vein and CorridorAesthetics.com. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Later this hour, death cafes create a comfortable, non-judgmental environment for participants to talk about end-of-life issues. I'll talk with Melinda Hines, who has brought the concept to the Cedar Valley. But first, the word marriage has all kinds of positive connotations. Love, security, happiness, family, partnership— But when a marriage goes wrong, it can feel like the worst kind of prison. Liz Lenz was in a marriage that went wrong. She got out, and now she's sharing what she's learned. Lenz is a journalist and author who writes the newsletter Men Yell at Me. Her latest book is This American Ex-Wife, How I Ended My Marriage and Started My Life. She also hosts the podcast This American Ex-Wife. The book just came out. She'll be doing a lot of events around the state, including an author after party on February 23rd at Storyhouse Book Pub in Des Moines. And Next Page Books is hosting an evening with Liz Lenz at CSPS in Cedar Rapids on February 27th. And Liz Lenz is with me now. Hello, Liz. Hi, thank you for having me back. Thank you so much for being here today. And let's go back to the beginning of your story. So uh, you and I have talked, it's been a long time since we've talked, but we've talked about growing up in a very Christian household with some very traditional ideas of marriage. So when you were growing up, you did have this sort of ideal set in front of you. Yeah, like, I mean, like so many girls, I grew up with this idea that you know, you get, you you grow up. You have the beautiful wedding. You wear the white dress, and and, and it was also reinforced. I grew up in a very religious home. I'm uh, one. I'm number two out of eight children. We were homeschooled in Texas. Um, you know, my parents met and married very early in their lives, and they're still married. And you know, just growing up in that like very Baptist. Texas environment um, that, you know, it was just like marriage and family was absolutely everything. And you thought that you had found that. For yes. yourself. You got married when you were just 22 years old? Yes. Well, okay, you say just 22, Charity, but I thought I was such a feminist for waiting until I graduated from college. Yes, I met someone in high school. We started dating in college, um, and, and he was and still is great, you know, solid, reliable, good family, great, wonderful family, and and it was everything I had been told was the right decision. And I'm a I'm a type A girl, uh, highly motivated. And, you know, I, you know, so you get good grades, you go to college, you get a job, you get married and you start a family. You know, that's I mean, that's a Midwestern idea. We moved to Iowa. We got a little house in Cedar Rapids. It felt like, you know, this was what you did to have a good life. And, uh, and 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 your siblings kind of have considered you, or at least for a very long time, the perfect sibling, well, the one that's doing it all right. <laughs> I hope they don't listen to this. Actually, just kidding. I hope they do. Um, yes, I was the goody two shoes. You know, the one who was always like, "Well, this is you know, we guys, we got to do our homework. Guys, mom asked us to clean the house, so we better clean the house." You know, um, it's so funny because when I did finally tell my siblings I was going to get divorced, I have a younger sister. 
sister, Catherine, who is, I mean, full of younger sister energy, hairstylist turned parole officer who lived in Florida. She is fun times. And when I called her and I was like, I'm getting divorced. And she started laughing. She was like, finally, it's your turn to screw up. Except she didn't say screw up, but I'm keeping it clean for public radio. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. So, I mean, you were living this this dream. You yes. were doing exactly what you should do. Tell me what started to feel wrong to you. Well, you know, there were there were a lot of little cracks and it's always hard to know, right? Like what's just being different people and what is not a good relationship. But I it really came to a head when I sold my first book, which is a huge dream for a writer. And um, what had happened was I'd written an article for a magazine about churches in the Midwest and how they were changing. And this was right before um, the 2016 caucuses. And, um, and, and that article got a lot of traction. A publisher reached out and said, could you turn this into a book? And I was just thrilled. And I I just remember being so over the moon and coming home and telling, well, you know how the story ends, my now ex-husband and and him just not being excited for it at all. And we had two small children at the time. They were babies. And and him just being like, well, who's going to watch the kids? And that was one of those moments where, you know, a lot of women do this, where they say, okay, your career first. And then once the kids are older, my career. And we were entering that time when, you know, the oldest was going to school and then the youngest was about to get into kindergarten. I was like, great, free time. And, 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 and I was realizing, oh, no, 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 this was not this was going to be a challenge because then the more I wrote and the more successful I got, um, the more of a problem it became. You know, we started going to marriage therapy and, it, you know, we would talk a lot about like, well, why did you say that in this article? And it's like, well, because that's what I think, you know, and a lot of people have problems with what I think. So he's not alone. But, you know, <laughs> well, and the the problems, a lot of the problems that you you yes. share in the book are structural problems yes. with traditional marriage. Now, there were other very serious problems yes. as well yes. um, that, that are not part of, of this structure, structure or this tradition, but it did make you start thinking about what's wrong with this structure. Right. So I had been, you know, I had been the primary caretaker of our children. I had, you know, given up jobs and opportunities to to do this, to raise them when they were little. And then when it was my turn to say, okay, now here's this this opportunity for my career. I want to do it. It became a problem. You know, I was saying, please, you know, please make dinner, please vacuum the floor, all those little things. And it just wasn't happening. You know, and I think a lot of women can identify this with this, where you're like, okay, please wipe the counter. And he's like, wipes it once, but then you have to constantly be reminding and constantly. And it was those little things that were adding up and just completely breaking me apart. And 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 I it, it became apparent that I could have a career or I could be married, but I couldn't do both. Right. And again, it was bigger, even bigger yes. than that. And I, I want to emphasize that as well. Um, but tell me a little bit. I mean, when you decided... 
And it was a heart-wrenching decision that it was time to leave and that you wanted a divorce. You'd gone through years of marriage counseling and trying to make this work in so many ways. The divorce process, you know, a lot of people who criticize our modern culture say, well, divorce is the easy way out. Divorce was not, was not an easy process. Listen, it is easier for a 16-year-old to get married in this country than it is for a 42-year-old to get divorced. Almost no states have waiting periods for marriage. Um, and, and even states that outlaw underage marriage, all it takes is a little signature, you know, to make that legal. Do you know what it takes to get divorced? So many states have waiting periods, and it's expensive, and it's and and it's just this like cumbersome burdensome process and even though our divorce was mediated it was as i think it was as frictionless as many divorces can get uh it still took a year to finalize you know and in that meantime you're in limbo and you know i hear from a lot of women who are like okay well we decided to get divorced but like i got to move out you know or he has to move out and we're living together but we're not together and it's it's a really complicated process and um you know i it, it's so not the easy way out like it, it it's complicated and not only is it like legally challenging but i think like also financially it's difficult also like the way that we structure our society with like taxes and health care and insurance it makes it really complicated um banks you know call a bank to change your name and they're like so confused as if you're the first person who's ever gotten divorced in the history of america before and um and then you add in all of that. And then there's the social backlash, too, where, you know, where people see you as a pariah or, you know, they don't want you to be around anymore because divorce is contagious or, you know, and, and it becomes it, it's a real it's a really difficult, sticky thing, even in 2024. It's also a, an emotionally difficult thing yes. to navigate as as you were talking about earlier. I mean, this was this is what you had been raised to view as success, so it also felt like a terrible failure. Yeah, that's you know, when when I decided to to leave my marriage, I wasn't doing it because I was like, oh, the grass is going to be greener on the other side. I did it because I valued my happiness because I said I could be happy or I could be married. I could have a career or I could be married. And I did not want to spend the rest of my life trying to train somebody where to find the ketchup in the grocery store. Um, and I wanted to be a full, complete, and human being. And so when I left, I felt like I was jumping off a cliff off of everything I had ever known. But when I got to the other side, and this is why I wrote the book, I realized it's great. It's actually amazing. And uh, choosing yourself is one of the best things I think a person can do and choosing your happiness. And also, as I talk about in the book, when I got to the other side, I had, even though, you know, as a single mother, I had free time all of a sudden. I could I could prioritize my career because the thing that brought equality to my parenting was court mandated 50-50 custody. And um and it was it was incredible. And even, you know, studies show that even single mothers who still have who are the primary uh caregivers to their children 
still have more free time than uh, their married counterparts. It's because marrying a man adds seven hours on average of domestic labor to a woman's life. And that is labor that he's not picking the slack up on. We are going to take a short break. We'll be back in just a moment. I'm talking with Liz Lenz. She is a journalist and author. Her latest book is This American Ex-Wife, How I Ended My Marriage and Started My Life. She's doing a lot of events around the state. Coming up soon on Friday, the author after party at Storyhouse Book Pub in Des Moines. And Next Page Books is hosting an evening with Liz Lenz at CSPS in Cedar Rapids on February 27th. We'll continue in a moment. This is Talk of Iowa. Support for this IPR podcast comes from Iowa Community Foundations, an initiative of the Iowa Council of Foundations, connecting donors to causes they care about. Details on the Endow Iowa Tax Credit Program at communityfoundations.org. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Coming up in about 15 minutes, we're going to find out what a death cafe is and why we might want to consider attending. Right now, though... We're talking about marriage and divorce. With me is Liz Lenz. She is a journalist and an author who writes the newsletter Men Yell at Me. She has written a book called This American Ex-Wife, How I Ended My Marriage and Started My Life. She's also hosting a podcast called This American Ex-Wife as well. She'll be at Storyhouse Book Pub in Des Moines on February 23rd for the author after party. And Next Page Books is hosting an evening with Liz Lenz at CSPS in Cedar Rapids on February. 27th. And so, Liz, so much of your work, people who have followed your work for years know this. You um, like to take us to that intersection of the personal and the political. So you going through this experience of ending your marriage, getting divorced, charting a new course as a single mom, navigating that 50-50 custody, you started thinking a lot about the political aspects and the social construct of marriage. You're pretty negative on it, I have to say. I mean, not all marriages are bad. You admit that. But uh, tell me a little bit about about what you think about this social construct and and why you're so concerned about it. Well, so... Let, let me guide you through the thought process because you're right. Marriage is a political system and I'm down on it. I don't think it should be how we organize our society. I think it's restrictive and I think it's based on the unpaid labor of women. We'll get there. People are listening going, what? Okay, hold on with me. So I jumped off this cliff. I changed my life. And when I got to the other side, I realized I had more free time and I could build my career. And 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 I was surprised by the freedom because I had thought that being a single mother was going to be this like really awful, stressful thing. And, and again, that's a that's a narrative that we hear a lot. We hear it all the time. But when I got there, 
I loved it. I loved it. And I had more free time and I was able to work and I was able to prioritize myself. And I was a better mother. I was a better person, a better friend and a better member of the community because I had more time to volunteer and do things like that. And I I wasn't thinking of it as a book, but you're right. Like I am a journalist. My bent is to always like start researching and to be like, what's happening? And and right around the time, um, right after my divorce was finalized, I published a piece called Now That I'm Divorced, I'm Never Cooking for a Man Again. And that piece went up on Glamour and went viral. And I started hearing from all these women who were like, yes, me too. And I, I was like, something's happening, right? Like something is happening that I don't think we're talking about. So I started doing some research and then uh, I got a little sidetracked. I was a little busy um, with other work, but then the, and then the shutdowns of 2020 pandemic, happened yeah. and that clarified everything that I was seeing and hearing from women who entered into these marriages with very kind, loving partners, thinking they would all be egalitarian, everything would be equal, but then they got in and they realized it wasn't equal, that despite their best intentions, the weight of the relationship, the emotional, the physical, all the cognitive labor, all of that was falling upon the women. And then the world shut down. And we realized as the sociologist Jessica Calarco, who's in Wisconsin and whose book is coming out this year, and it's wonderful. But as she says, America doesn't have a social safety net. We have the unpaid labor of women, of mothers. And when that was happening, I was realizing Actually, marriage, which is a modern invention, the way that we see marriage is a modern invention built upon the laws of coverture, right, which basically subsume a woman's identity under her husband. And that's 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 the model that America built marriage on. And, you know, I was doing this research and realizing, like, women didn't have access to lines of credit. You know, it was still legal up until the, you know, early the 90s and early 2000s in many states, like marital rape was still legal. And if that doesn't tell you how we view women as a piece of property, wives as a piece of property, I don't know what else will. But I was realizing that while relationships are great and wonderful and they are the most human thing about us. Marriage is a social construction upon which, you know, we've built our entire tax base and it's it can be so oppressive. And I wanted to kick that. I wanted to say, actually, there are better ways to build our lives and we are being constrained by these binaries and we need to bust them open. And now this is also what I'm going to say a quick thing where when I'm talking about women, I am using that term in the in the broadest, most inclusive way possible. If you identify as a woman, then you are a woman. And I think that's important to say in the state of Iowa. And I just want to be so clear about that, especially given everything that's going on. So marriage is something that is strongly encouraged. And there are a lot of arguments about the kind of marriage that that 
you know, is the right kind of marriage, although we do have marriage equality in this country. And that's a relatively recent (laughs) development. But you argue that politicians push us toward marriage in lieu of creating a social safety net. Tell me more about that. Well, it's not um, it's not a secret. I mean, it's been happening since Jimmy Carter. And it's a it's a bipartisan thing. I'm going to throw both parties under the bus on this. You know, it was these are social programs that were developed under Jimmy Carter, you know, with the Moynihan report. This is Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, George W. Bush. Um, These are presidencies and politicians who basically said we're going to strengthen marriage instead of funding a social safety net. And you can look at like currently the blueprint to save America, which was put out by um, the Republicans in 2022. It says we're not going to you know, we're going to defund these SNAP programs, welfare, and instead we're going to push healthy marriages so we can stop women from being single mothers. They never mention single fathers. And it's happening here in the state of Iowa. Um, you know, back in 2022, a woman sent me the, a letter. She went, she got divorced. She went on welfare. It happens. And that is why welfare exists. And she got, she got her SNAP benefit letter. And it basically, there was a whole thing about like how to have a happy and healthy marriage. And she just, you know, she she said that that made her feel so shamed because she had exited that marriage because of abuse. Right. She was saving her life and the life of her children. And she comes out and she's being shamed, you know, for using this social safety net. And you can see in other countries that have better social safety nets, they actually have better uh, relations, like better long term relationships. And there's even studies that show like um, in countries that have more liberal divorce laws, marriages last longer, right? Women earn more money. And so it's it's not a secret that politicians would so much rather push women into marriage so they can be the child care that they refuse to fund. I'm talking with Liz Lenz. Her most recent book is This American Ex-Wife, How I Ended My Marriage and Started My Life. You also write about the fact that, you know, we've we've created this specific kind of marriage in this country. We have a, an, an American construct for marriage, which is not entirely dissimilar from other countries, but it does vary in some pretty important ways. But we also kind of invented divorce in a lot of ways. Oh, one of my favorite parts of researching this book was realizing that like when you found a country on freedom and justice for all, that other people will be like, hey, me too. Right. And so, yes, America kind of made divorce like into its own kind of thing. And researching this was, um, you know, it was fascinating to see that women have always been the primary instigators, statistically the primary instigators of divorce, even back in the early days of our country when you had to petition, you know, your local government to grant you a decree of divorce. And like, imagine those are just like a bunch of land owning white men who you have to go to as a woman and say, I need to leave because these 
awful things are happening. You have to say that publicly. Imagine how bad it has to be to want to get out. I mean, I don't I mean, I don't even want to talk to my board of supervisors about my personal life. So um, and uh, so that was happening. And one of the incredible things was that Thomas Jefferson actually wrote a full throated defense of divorce in a brief, undated, bad dater. But um, it, it never got filed because the husband in the case passed away, solving some problems. But of course, in pure Thomas Jefferson style, he was defending divorce for men only, right? Like freedom and justice for men only. But you know, when when the, the suffragist movement was happening, women were coming out and saying, we need freedom, not just to vote, but we need freedom in marriage, too. We need to reinvent marriage. This idea that marriage has been a trap for women, that we need to free ourselves from it, has has been is as old as this country. And um, and it's, you know, lots of women have been talked about. Lucy Stone was one, you know, and um, and and Victoria Woodhull, right? These are all women who said, hey, marriage is repressive and we need to do something about it. So in in showing us that we have pushed for traditional marriage in lieu of creating a social safety net, what's what's your vision for the future? If the United States had a stronger social safety net, what what do you think should happen to marriage? Um, you know, marriage is always going to exist, but I do think that, and 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 I think you know, there's this there's this idea that's like, oh, well, if if we don't need, if people don't, if people aren't forced into marriage for like legal reasons or healthcare reasons, then who would choose it? It's like, well, if the institution's that bad that you have to force people into it, like maybe let's rethink things. Marriage is always going to exist. But what we can do is create a society where people are entering into that agreement with their full with, without feeling forced into it. Right now, in so many states, including the state of Iowa, women's reproductive rights are being taken away from them. And that forces women into bad situations, right? There is a pay gap. And that pay gap exists. Well, we were making great progress on it until, you know, recently. And these are all things that force women into bad relationships and bad marriages. But as you can see, like I was saying earlier, in other countries that have liberal divorce laws, that have social safety nets, that um, relationships last longer, these marriages last longer. So even if you're like, Liz, I do not agree with you. Marriage is great and we should strengthen it. The number one thing that strengthens marriage is giving women freedom and choice. Because when a person enters into that relationship with their full, all the choices that they have and they're still picking you, well, first of all, that should feel great, you know. But second of all, that that's what creates a long-lasting relationship. And so, you know, and that's not just me saying that. That's, there's bodies and bodies of research and evidence that show if you want to create a strong society, give women reproductive rights, stop legislating what gender is or is not, and stop forcing women into marriage and let them have choices. 
Throughout the book, you share excerpts from conversations that you've had with many different women and men about divorce. And publishing the book, doing the podcast, I mean, I'm sure that those conversations have kind of exploded recently. Tell me, tell me what you learn from other women when you when you share your story. They share their stories. Yes. I think one of the greatest joys of my life is that I've I've created a job where I just get to talk to people and people talk to me and I hear so much from women. And it's, it's also one of the reasons I wanted to write this book was because there's so much in our culture that is like marriage is good and un- and divorce is bad. And I wanted to say divorce is just another tool and it's really actually awesome. You know, I wanted to counterbalance that. And I hear from so many women and the stories in the book are anonymous and they had to be um, because so many women were like, let me tell you my story, but also you you can't use my name because it's so personal and so deeply, deeply personal and vulnerable that I wanted to protect them, but also tell the truth of the lives that I don't even think people fully realize. It's like during the the second wave of feminism when they had all those consciousness raising groups where women would gather together and tell the truth of their lives and they'd realize it's not just me. It's not my problem. It's actually the problem of the system. And so that's what I'm hearing. Yes, my, my Instagram messages are a little out of control. So is my email. But it is so many women saying, me, this is my life and I'm struggling with this too. And I want to choose my own happiness. And I don't want to feel like I'm selfish for it. And or, you know, divorce was the best thing that ever happened to me. And um, yeah, I think we need more of these kinds of conversations. And you also, some of those conversations that you share were, were hard because people People say things that sound extremely judgmental of the choices that you've made, like, uh, and we don't have time to, to get deeply into this. You've already talked about how, how you feel like divorce made you a better parent, but mm-hmm. um, and that unhappy parents are, are hard for kids. But you had a friend who was like, oh, I could never do that to my kids right after you yes. just did that to your kids. So it's, yes. it's, a, it's a thorny, thorny subject. And with only 30 seconds left, you also share the celebrations of divorce. Do you think that we need a a wave of divorce parties and ceremonies? I think we need to celebrate every big milestone in our lives. And we need to find better ways of celebrating our relationships in all their forms and our choices in all their forms. And we need better ways to build our lives in community. And if that involves a big divorce party with me in Des Moines uh, (laughs) this Friday, then I think that That's absolutely amazing. Liz Lenz, thank you so much. Thank you. Liz Lenz is a journalist and an author. She writes the newsletter Men Yell at Me. She hosts the podcast This American Ex-Wife. And her latest book is This American Ex-Wife, How I Ended My Marriage and Started My Life. She will be at the author after party on February 23rd at Storyhouse Book Pub in Des Moines. And Next Page Books is hosting an evening with Liz Lenz at CSPS in Cedar Rapids on February 27th. Coming up in just a moment, we will find out what a death cafe is and why it may be important to talk about end-of-life issues. This is Talk of Iowa from IPR News. 
Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. It's Talk of Iowa from IPR News. I'm Charity Nebbe. Death is a subject that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. It is also something that every single one of us will need to face. Melinda Hines is an assistant professor of family services at the University of Northern Iowa, and she is trying to facilitate open, honest, non-judgmental conversations about end-of-life issues, in part by hosting death cafes in the Cedar Valley. The next one is coming up on February 28th at the Cedar Falls Public Library at 7 p.m. It is free and open to the public. And Melinda Hines is with me now. Hello, Melinda. Hi, Charity. Good morning. Thank you so much for being here. And and death is a subject that makes a lot of us uncomfortable. When did you become interested in, in conversations surrounding death and dying? Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in a very small rural area just outside of Mason City in a small farming community called um, Doherty, Iowa. And so, you know, I grew up attending a lot of funerals. That was something that I was very comfortable with. And um, when I was a graduate student, I actually had the opportunity to teach my first class independently. And it was on death and dying. And um, since then, I've really been interested in the content, really love teaching that class. And then now being here at UNI, I'm able to teach families and end-of-life issues. And so um, it's always a topic that I've felt comfortable with, always been interested. And um, I think it's a really important topic for us to discuss, even though it can be a little bit sensitive. So as you started facilitating those conversations and talking with college students, a lot of college students have never considered that they might ever die. Um, can you tell right. me a little bit about like what you observed in, in opening up this topic? Right. So we started our first um, death cafe here in in the Cedar Valley in October, and um, we've had four um, total. And and again, we're hoping to maybe hold them every month or so. But, um, you know, sometimes just getting the conversation going um, can take a little bit of time because people don't always feel, you know, brave enough to go first. Um, But we've had an interesting mix. We've had older adults come. We've had college students come and um, they're able to hear from each other about types of loss that they have encountered, and also how they cope with it. Um, You know, we've had students talk about how they are coping with a loss being far from home, maybe far from a support system, and um, how how they're dealing with that. And then on the other hand, we're, we're hearing from older adults who talk about, you know, attending funerals frequently. And, you know, I think that that's kind of surprising for students to think about, that that's part of their, um, you know, weekly experience in some cases. And the idea that, you know, it's not always super sad, but it's an opportunity to pay respect to that person, reminisce. But in a lot of cases, you know, that that older adult has lived a long life. And so they're not these sad and somber events. And so just having those open conversations about experiences um, with death has been really interesting. The The idea of the Death Cafe, it's, this is a worldwide movement. Can you tell me a little bit about where it started? Sure. So it started actually with um, a Swiss sociologist, so by the name of Bernard Quittaz, and he began hosting um, meetings in cafes um, related to death after he experienced the death of his wife. And this was in the late 90s, early 2000s. And then um, two individuals in London were really inspired by his idea. So John Underwood, Sue Barsky-Reed, 
um, you know, started creating more of these death cafes and actually came up with the term death cafes. Um, And that movement really spread um, quite rapidly throughout Europe. And then here in the U.S., um, the first death cafe was held in in 2012 um, by a hospice social worker by the name of Lizzie Miles. And she was really interested in in end-of-life issues based on her work, but really felt the need to have more of these conversations for um, people in our communities. Where did you encounter the concept? So um, I've always kind of been familiar with with the term, but it wasn't until I was talking with um, a colleague who runs these regularly um, back in Ireland that um, I was really like, well, maybe maybe I could think about that because she teaches a similar course there and um, she hosts death cafes regularly. They're they're very popular. Um, she actually has to um, kind of cap um, the number of people that can come because they're so popular. And so I thought, you know, maybe maybe I could try it. And so I talked with my department. They were really supportive of it. Um, you know, I just wanted to kind of float the idea by them to see, like, what do you think? Could this work in the Cedar Valley? Um, you know, and they they really were supportive and thought, well, let's try it. And, you know, I thought, well, the worst that can happen is no one comes. Um, but we were really fortunate with the first one that we had, I think, about 14 people attend. And I thought, OK, there really seems like there um, there is interest in this and maybe a need to have these conversations. So. Um, yeah, my, my interest came from kind of my, my colleague and then my department was really supportive and um, I've, I'm just sort of in the early stages of facilitating and hosting these, but it seems to be going well. So uh, you teach classes about end of life issues, but this is not you teaching or you lecturing. How do you right. f- facilitate the conversation? Because you're, you're not necessarily driving the subject matter here. Right. And that's a good point, too. So with death cafes, there's not a preset agenda. And that's really important because where that conversation goes really depends on who attends. So, you know, as a facilitator, you know, my host is to kind of set some ground rules explaining that, you know, we need to have tolerance for other people's viewpoints. Um, You know, we need to make sure that everybody who wants to speak has a chance to do that. Um, But yeah, I'm not driving the conversation um, at all. And I also try to be really mindful of, you know, is there somebody who wants to say something, but, you know, somebody who's a little bit more talkative keeps, um, you know, keeps interjecting into the conversation. So I look more at, you know, kind of trying to read the room and decide how can I make sure everybody is being heard in this conversation. People have a lot of different ideas about death in our culture. How do you try to create an environment that that people feel like they can safely share their views in? Yeah, that's that's something that's really important to me, both, you know, in in the classes that I teach, but also um, when I'm out in the community hosting these death cafes. I think, you know, creating that place where there is tolerance and respect um, to hear from other people, even if you may not agree with that, is is really, really important because there's a lot of diverse perspectives and views out there. And um, I think it's important to listen to where other people are coming from and not be not be in a place where we're trying to attack them or um, prove them wrong. I think just being there to listen and then maybe share an alternative point if you want, um, but not being so quick to to jump in and try to correct someone. Um, and I've been really fortunate that, you know, there has been really diverse views shared and um, people have been very respectful with appreciating where somebody is coming from, but then posing maybe um, an alternative view in a, in a respectful way. In your death cafes, you also 
use maybe some shortcuts to to try to make it a more comfortable environment. You you pass out adult coloring sheets. How is that meant to facilitate respectful yeah. conversation? Yeah. So that might seem like, well, how does that fit in or how does that relate? But um, this was actually a tip um, that my colleague in Ireland gave to me. And she had mentioned that because um, these individuals are strangers, you know, as people are kind of trickling in, some people come ahead of time. Um, it's a little bit awkward because not everybody knows each other. And usually in most cases, nobody knows each other. And so to avoid maybe some of the awkwardness, people can focus on the adult coloring sheets if they want. Um, I have also noticed that when we are discussing something particularly sensitive, um, some individuals also like to look down at um, the coloring sheet. Um, you know, it allows them to maybe focus on that rather than making very intimate eye contact with the person sitting next to them. So um, it's been kind of an interesting tool and has actually been more effective than I might have um, anticipated. Traditionally, a lot of death cafes also involve cake. Do you bring cake to your death cafes? I haven't yet, but um, at um, we had a death cafe um, last month at the Dementia Simulation House here um, at UNI, and um, there were snacks provided, and um, we'll actually be having another um, death cafe at the Dementia Simulation House in March, towards the end of March, um, where we will also have um, um, some some treats. We'll also have coffee, things like that. Um, but yeah, that's to kind of help lighten the mood, right? It can be a very serious topic. But, um, you know, I think beverages, treats, tea, coffee can kind of put people at ease, too. So facilitating these conversations about death, again, you don't have an agenda beyond trying to give people an opportunity to talk about death. What do you feel like that gives the participants? What does that accomplish to to be able to have these conversations? Well, it, it creates a space where that's supported because in our everyday lives, I don't think that we are really encouraged to have those conversations. People try to change the subject because it can be uncomfortable um, or people feel like, oh, that's not appropriate. It's too sensitive. Uh, let's talk about that later. So, you know, I think in our everyday lives, we don't we don't encounter a lot of opportunities where people are encouraging us to have these conversations. So I think creating a specific place to do that um, is important to think about kind of our, our own mortality. Um, we tend to be, especially in Western society, a very sort of death denying society in some ways. We don't want to think about death uh, for ourselves or for loved ones. But, um, you know, it is inevitable. And um, that's something that I think we need to come to terms with. And, and I do think a lot of people, we know that death is coming for us eventually, but we don't necessarily want to think about it. And we know that we can't prevent it even by thinking about it. So help me understand what you think we gain from these conversations. How does that better equip us to deal with death? Yeah, I think sometimes having these conversations, people might come to terms with maybe their own preferences. So, you know, sometimes we talk about funerals at, at the death cafe and people might come to a realization that they want a specific type of funeral or, you know, they want people to maybe wear specific colors at their visitation. So I think it creates an opportunity to think about maybe what you would want. And as you are thinking about that, I think it gives you or encourages you to, to have those conversations with your family to pass on your preferences and wishes because, um, at the end of life, you know, sometimes we don't always know what a loved one would want because we haven't taken the time 
to have these really important conversations. And then you're in this incredibly stressful moment, those who have survived, where you have to plan a funeral and you may not know what the best best plans are that you could be following. But even even more importantly, the way we die in this country can be so painful and and so ugly. And when we're not prepared for those end of life decisions, people sometimes suffer more. Tell me a little bit about trying to facilitate those conversations about not just what you want to happen after you die, but what you want to happen as you're dying. Yeah. So I think a lot about quality of life related to that. Um, You know, we have a lot of, you know, technology, treatments, options um, in many cases. And those options, you know, might be recommended to us by by physicians. And um, but as we think about some of those options, I think it's also important to think about, well, what are the side effects? What are the risks of that treatment? And if those side effects are are too great, you know, that might actually decrease my quality of life and is extending life at all costs always better than maybe a shorter life, but a life where, you know, I feel I feel good, I don't feel pain, I'm not experiencing all these negative side effects. So, you know, I think really thinking about some of those things is is important. And not only for ourselves, but for our family members too. You know, what are you what are your trade-offs? What are you willing to to deal with in hopes of extending life? Or is your priority um, you know, maybe just maintaining high quality of life for as long as possible and recognizing that your life may be me shorter than somebody else's because you're choosing not to pursue a treatment. We only have a couple of minutes left, but I'm sure these conversations spark a lot of curiosity in people. And there's so much more to explore and to read and conversations to have. What are some of your favorite resources that you point people toward when they say, you know, I really need need to find out more about this? Yeah. So, um, you know, one place I think to start is um, deathcafe.com. You can see on there where there might be a death cafe in your area. Um, I also really encourage people to think about some online options. There are death cafes being held both in the U.S. and all around the world that um, are online only. So, you know, that creates a lot of different opportunities for you to be able to hear from other people um, both in your country, outside of your country, from from very maybe different cultures, um, which can maybe inform in your decision making and, um, you know, just just cause you to maybe think about what you want in your own preferences. So there's a lot of really interesting, you know, research resources out there. But I think we need to make sure that we're exploring those options. As someone who's done a great deal of research about this and and looked around the world, are there are there places that do death better than we do in the United States? Oh, that's an interesting question. Um, you know, I think um, you know outside of the U.S. and especially in more Western Europe, there tends to be more death acceptance. There tends to be um, a more death welcoming culture. If I'm um, you know painting kind of broad strokes there, but. One thing that I found really interesting since hosting these is that people tend to be a little bit turned off with the with the term death cafe or it causes them to pause and think, oh, I don't know if I if I want to be a part of that versus when I talk with other people who facilitate these in other parts of the world. um, I've never heard from them that people are uncomfortable with the actual name. So I just just find that interesting being in the U.S. The with even the term, even how we frame it just can be uncomfortable for people. 
You mentioned earlier that a lot of students from you and I have been attending these death cafes and also older people. Are you missing somebody in the middle? Do you need do you need more middle aged people to come and have these conversations? Yeah, we yeah, we've had to have, we have had some people um, in middle age attend, but um, it does seem to be kind of more older adults and then college students. But um, I'm also wondering if maybe at the Cedar Falls Public Library Death Cafe, since that one is going to be in the evening, if we might get more people who, um, you know, have finished up work and, and we would be interested in attending that in the evening. So I'll be curious to see kind of who comes to that one. And this event at the public library and the poster, it also stipulates that you should be 18 or older to come. Yes. So this is this is an adult conversation that you want to have. Absolutely. Yep. And that's important to keep in mind, too. Um you know, it's really, you know, these are sensitive topics that come up. And so just making sure that only adults are in the room for those conversations, yes, is is important. Melinda, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you, Charity. Melinda Hines is an assistant professor of family services at the University of Northern Iowa. She is trying to facilitate open, honest, non-judgmental conversations about end-of-life issues by hosting death cafes. She's got another one coming up on February 28th at the Cedar Falls Public Library. It's at 7 p.m. It is free and open to the public as long as the public is 18 years or older. Talk of Iowa is a production of IPR News. Our producers are Samantha McIntosh, Danny Gear, and Caitlin Troutman. We get production assistance from Kate Perez and Maddie Willis. We get technical support today from Tony Daner and from Steve Cooper. You never need to miss an episode of Talk of Iowa. Please subscribe to our podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Talk of Iowa. I'm Charity Nebbe.